So I bear that in mind now as we approach God's Word. I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his help. Lord, this is a familiar passage to many. But don't let its familiarity breed contempt in our hearts, God. Would you help us to hear it maybe afresh for the first time? Would you apply it in new ways to our hearts for the first time? May we hear what you are saying to us as your people. And may we apply... Uh, Your word rightly, God, open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts that we may be transformed. We ask it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. What is love? What is love? Baby, sorry. I can't ask that question without hearing that song in my head. It takes me back to high school, Saturday Night Live. Right, love is one of those words that uh, is pretty easy to, uh, it's, it's a pretty slippery word, right? We can say, I love you, or we can say, I love shoes. And I think we know that, of course, those don't bear the same weight, and yet it tells us that love for us is kind of murky, right? We don't quite know best how to apply it. That word has been used destructively, uh, and it has been used to great power. 
This passage, as I mentioned, is probably pretty well known uh, to many of you. Uh, it's usually read at weddings. Uh, I've known married couples to memorize uh, this chapter, the love chapter as it's called, for an anniversary or some other occasion. And while that use is fine, that's actually not originally, it didn't have anything to do with married or romantic love. That's not, uh, that's not the context in which Paul gives it. Paul isn't speaking at a wedding. He's actually speaking to a warring church. To a church that is uh, dividing itself, splitting over who had what gifts and how important they were. And just kind of a quick reminder from our sermon last week. Paul is now dealing with this issue of spiritual gifts in the church and what it looks like is happening is those who have the miraculous, powerful gifts are kind of saying, oh no, we're really the important ones. We're the spirit-filled ones. And therefore shunning those who did not have those same gifts. And Paul told us last week in chapter 12 that not everybody has the same gifts, that this body called the church is made up of different parts and every part is necessary. And so in that context then, over against these warring actions, this battlefield gifts, Paul speaks this uh, this word. He says, let me show you a better way. Let me show you a more excellent way. So Paul says, uh, even at the end there of chapter 12, right? Is everybody an apostle? No, right? He asks all these rhetorical questions, uh, begging the answer, right? Does everybody speak in tongues? No. He's like, so that's fine. Desire the higher gifts. But even more important than that, let me show you a more excellent way. And the more excellent way, the most excellent way, is love. Love must be the defining mark of true Christian community. That's, that's where we're going today. Love must be the defining mark of true Christian community. Underneath everything else, whatever else the church is or says or does, underneath that must be love. This is her way of life. Jesus himself said as much, that we would be known uh, by our love for one another. So what does that mean? Since love is so murky and yet it is what should define us as a church, what does it mean? We're going to look at this passage under three headings. First, love is necessary. Second, love is self-denying. And third, love is permanent. It is necessary, it is self-denying, and it is permanent. First, love is necessary. There in those first three verses, Paul goes through these, uh, these several powerful gifts. And his point is to show that it really doesn't matter what gifts you have or what service you offer. If love is not the animating force behind it, it's worthless. Regardless of the gifts you have or the service you offer, if love is not the animating force behind it, the power in it, then it really isn't worth a whole lot. So look at what he says, right? He mentions several gifts. First, he says, I can, if I speak in the languages of men and of angels, right? I can, I can speak in all kinds of different languages, um, even uses the language of angels. I don't think Paul's trying to say that necessarily that's a language available to us. I think Paul is using some uh, hyperbole there to make the point that I can have this amazing gift And yet, if I don't have love, it's all noise. 
I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I just make a lot of noise. If I don't have love and the use of the gift of tongues, then it's just noise. I can be a prophet. I can have, I can fathom all the understanding and all the knowledge. I can have a special faith that moves mountains, right? I don't think Paul's talking about saving faith here. I think he's talking about a, a special gift of faith to trust God for the impossible. Uh, so that the church can be encouraged. I think that's a unique spiritual gift that Paul mentions here. And Paul's saying, listen, you can have that gift. You can have great powers of speech. You can understand everything that God is doing. And yet if you don't have love, you're nothing. Paul says literally, I am no one. I'm a nothing. And then... I can give everything, I can, I can give away everything I have, I can even give up my body to be sacrificed, right? I can make the ultimate sacrifice, but if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. I gain nothing. Now think about how counterintuitive that is. How counterintuitive it is for our culture, for how... how for, for Corinth, certainly, right? Remember, we've talked about Corinth, the city where... Uh, you wanted to make a name for yourself. Corinth was a new money city. It was a bustling port city. You went there to make a name for yourself, to make something of yourself. Reputation was big. You wanted to be something. And Paul says, if you don't have love, you're nothing. You guys, and that's, and that's what they were doing in the church. They were using their gifts that God had given them, gifts of His grace, and they were saying, I'm something. And Paul says, no, you're not. Not without love. He looks at, at three different camps of people, right? And we can even make this a modern application for us, right? For the, for the charismatic Pentecostal camp that says the sign, the sign of the Spirit at work is the sign of tongues. Paul says, no, it's not. It's love. If you don't have love, it's just noise. Then to the other camp, knowledge matters. Good preaching matters. That's the sign of the Spirit's work. Paul says, no, it's not. Love is. If you don't have that, you're no one. And then to a third camp that would say, well, really it's all about what you can do for other people. If you'll just be, if you'll just be generous, right? Give away what you have, even if you have to give away your whole life. That's the sign of the Holy Spirit at work. Paul says, no. No, even that doesn't have to be motivated by the Spirit. If there's not love there, it profits you nothing. Love is the mark. Love is what defines the way of life for the church. How counterintuitive, how upside down Paul is from the way we usually think. We love gifted people. We love following gifted people. We love the big show. We love the production. We flock to it. And Paul says, you're going the wrong direction. Love is the way to go. So if it's necessary, if that's what makes up the church's way of life, what is it? We should really figure out how love is defined uh, if, if love is necessary. 
And I, I kind of use this one phrase, love is self-denying, to try to capture all of these different descriptions of love. It may not be the best phrase, but just look at how Paul describes love starting in chapter 4. And again, I want you to think about this in terms not of, not of marriage, not of romantic relationships, but think about it in terms of all relationships. And since Paul's speaking to a Christian community, particularly those who are in the church, those who are in the Christian community, listen to the way Paul describes it. He almost talks as if love is a person. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. Paul tells us what love is. Love is patient. Patient. Even just saying that word makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? Right? Uh, The word is long-suffering. Long-burning would be the Old Testament equivalent. Think of a smoldering log, not... Not one that sparks and burns out quickly, but one that smolders for the long haul. Enduring, patient, long-suffering. D.A. Carson uh, puts it this way. He says, uh, patient, this word is not, doesn't simply mean waiting, but being willing to endure injury without retaliation. Now, let's just camp out right there for a minute. Being willing to endure injury without retaliation. Love doesn't need to vent. Love doesn't need to post a comment. Love don't have to tweet. Right? Love can leave things unsaid because love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Love doesn't have to to get back. Love is patient. Love is kind. Not nice. There's a difference between nice and kind. Nice is southern, right? Nice is southern. Nice is that kind of that kind of surfacey smiling. Oh, isn't that nice? Right? Smiling up here but down here not so much. Right? That is not kindness. No, kindness goes deep. Niceness, niceness hangs back. Niceness doesn't really want to offend. Niceness doesn't want to get involved. But kindness moves in. Kindness knows what's best for the other person. When niceness refrains, kindness steps forward. Kindness runs deep. Kindness seeks the good of the other. I think I traumatized some of the kids uh, a few months ago. So I, I do our kids program on Wednesday nights. And I made the remark uh, in one of those Wednesday night Bible studies that God is not nice. And they were like, what? And so I had to clarify. Right? God is not nice. God is kind, but He is not nice. Nice is kind of that fake smiling southern thing. Kindness is something else altogether, right? Uh, rather than retaliate, kindness repays good for evil. When wronged, kindness says, I'll do right. That's love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not 
boast. Think about those two words for a minute, right? Your, your translation may say jealousy. Love is not jealous, right? I want you to put envy and boast on two ends of the pride spectrum, right? If you envy someone, it means that you are, you're self-absorbed, but you're self-absorbed in such a way that all you can see is what you lack and what you think you deserve, Right? So in, on this end of the pride spectrum, envy says, I wish I was them. Or, I deserve what they have. That should be me. That's envy. Right? So you're still self-focused. You're still on the pride spectrum. But you're, you're self-focused in a negative way. You envy. Now on the other side, right? Love does not boast. If envy says, I wish that were me, pride says, or boasting says, you wish you were me, right? Boasting vaunts itself, puts itself forward, says, yes, I am that good, right? Love does neither of those things because love is self-denying. Love isn't so consumed with what it doesn't have, nor does it think a whole lot of what it does have. To love, those two things are irrelevant because love is self-denying, Love is not arrogant, is not puffed up. We've talked about that word before. Paul uses it a lot to talk about the Corinthians, that they are bloated, conceited, puffed up. That's not love. Love is not rude. Now, maybe that seems like a strange word if, you know, if our definition of rudeness is basically like, you know, burping at the table. Um, but, but think about it this way. Rudeness is is how you act when you don't care about the other person in the room. Hence, you belch at the table, right? Rudeness is when you're not concerned with the other person. You could really care less how they feel or what they think. You're going to be you regardless. Okay? Love is not rude. It considers the other person. It acts properly towards them. It understands where they are. And acts properly. Love is not rude. Love takes others into account before acting. Love doesn't seek its own. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Literally, love is not easily stirred up. Man, how much does this have to say to where we are today? We are in the midst of a hyper-stirred-up culture. Every word provokes a response from both sides. Everyone, it just seems like if you light a match, something explodes every other day. And the voices around us want that atmosphere. They promote that, right? We tune in to the news more when they provoke and so we actually put ourselves in the position of being provoked on a regular basis. And to us, God says, love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily stirred up. Love is not easily whipped up into a frenzy. We need to hear that. Love does not, uh, love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. Literally there, Paul says, it does not count up wrongdoing. 
I want you to, uh, to get in your mind the picture of like a bean counter or an accountant, right? A bookkeeper. But somebody who's got a ledger of every ill thing that's ever been said or done to them. And they're just counting it up, right? They're just writing it down, storing it up for future use. Right? That, just, oh, yep, she said that. Gonna keep that for later. Mm-hmm, he did that to me. Okay, gonna want, yep, hold on to that one, right? Gonna highlight that. Make sure I keep that record, right? Paul says, love doesn't keep that record. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love says, throw the ledger out. You don't get to store up every cross word ever spoken to you, every slight ever sent your way. Love absorbs that. Love doesn't tally it up just waiting for the right moment to hash it back out. That's not love. That's something else. Now, even though love doesn't count up wrongdoing, verse 6, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice at injustice. It does not rejoice with evil. It doesn't, just, just because love doesn't take account of personal slights doesn't mean that it gives evil a pass. Love does not rejoice with what is wrong. Rather, it rejoices with the truth. And so love stands where standing is necessary. Love rejoices with what is true and good and right. So even though you may let personal attacks go, if you see injustice in society or in family life or in church life, love moves into that and corrects it with truth. Again, love doesn't keep records of wrongs, but it doesn't play fast and loose with evil either. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then Paul summarizes this way. He says, love bears all things. That, that word was used, you think of, uh, think of, of building a deck or a platform over something. Love covers over. Love bears. It holds up under all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, right? Love patiently perseveres because it trusts in the Lord Jesus and the hope that is to come. Right, Paul's giving us an indication of how this can maybe even begin to be true of us. How is it possible that I can't count up wrongdoings? Well, I trust in the Lord Jesus. Matthew did a fantastic job of this in our confession of sin. The reason that I can forgive those who sin against me is because I trust that the justice necessary is poured out on Jesus or will be poured out on the day to come. I don't have to handle that. I can throw the ledger out because God keeps a far better one than I do. I don't have to vent or explode because God will handle what is wrong and what is right. I can actually persevere in loving other people because God is the one uh, who will handle everything else. I don't have to step out my sphere, outside my sphere of responsibility and take His. He's got justice, he's got forgiveness, he's got wrath, he's got like, he's gonna handle all that. What he calls me to do is love. Bear up patiently in love. How impossible does that sound? Right? We'll get there. Before we do, love is permanent. So love is 
necessary. Love is self-denying. Love is permanent. Paul says love never ends. But for prophecies, they'll pass away. Actually, the language there is much stronger, right? They'll actually be destroyed. So Paul, Paul is being intentionally... Uh, for those of you who think that the Bible speaks softly, um, it's usually just because of the way we translate it. Paul don't mind getting in somebody's face, okay? And so uh, Paul says, hey, that gift of prophecy that you think so much of, it won't be around forever. It'll be done away with. Washed off. Destroyed. Right? Prophecies, they will cease. Tongues, they'll cease. They'll be done away with. Knowledge, it'll pass away. Right, all these special gifts that you are so keen on elevating yourselves over, they're not going to last forever. But you know what will? Love will. So practice love. Love won't end. All of the gifts will. All of the gifts will be done away with. And then he paints this beautiful picture uh, for us to tell us why. Verse 9, We know in part and we prophesy in part. So right now, We know and we prophesy in our limited understanding, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul says there will come a day when all of these gifts that God has given to the church, whether it's preaching, teaching, tongues, etc., there will come a day, the perfect day, when those aren't needed anymore. Paul's saying, I'm going to be out of a job in heaven. The spiritual gifts that he gives to the church in this age won't be needed in the one to come. Because maturity will be here. There will be no more need for the spiritual gifts because we'll have everything we need. The partial is done away with. The fullness will come. Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That we right now, this is going to come as a blow to some of you, we right now are immature. Sorry, but... Right, that's the image Paul uses. That, that this side of heaven, this side of the return of Jesus, we are in our immaturity. We are like children. And like children, we need training wheels and high chairs and little plastic spoons. Okay? Paul is saying that when we grow up, we won't need high chairs and training wheels and little plastic spoons because then the perfect will be here. We will be the perfection, the maturity of what we will be. Paul is looking right at those who brag about their gifts and saying, you know, you're not going to have that gift forever. You won't need it forever. The reason you need it now is because of your immaturity. Okay? Paul says, we're going to grow up. We're going to grow up when the perfect comes. So don't boast about your gifts. And then he says this, for now... We see in a mirror dimly. I don't know if that, that verse, you may have heard of that phrase, you've heard it, but it never quite made sense to you. Right? Like, like, what's wrong with Paul's mirror? You know, has he got the lights off in the bathroom? What's he doing? Right? So in Paul's day, mirrors were not made of reflective glass. They were made of polished metal. And so your reflection was only going to be so good. Right? Uh, I think of uh, I think of a rest area that's been vandalized so often they just put like the mirrors have been broken enough that they just put the sheet metal up right so you can kind of see that you're there but not really that's what Paul's talking about right now that's us this side of the return of Jesus we can only see the shape 
can see a reflection, but I see it dimly. Paul says there's coming a day when I will see fully. When I will see everything very clearly. Right now I'm just looking at a mirror dimly, but then I will see fully. Right now we just know partially. Our knowledge is limited. Our perspective on God is limited. We are confined to a fallen body and a fallen world and a fallen church. We can't fully grasp everything. So we have to live by faith. And even then we're going to get it wrong. So we have to love one another and forgive one another. Even now, we know only in part. But Paul says a day is coming that we will know fully. Even as we are fully known. It's a beautiful thing to be known, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing to be understood and embraced. Paul says right now, for the believer, that you are fully known. In other words, God understands you. He understands you better than you understand yourself. Paul says a day is coming when the same will be true of me. When I will know Him as fully. And you think about, just, just fathom for a second, use your imagination about the depth of the character of God. Oftentimes, small children ask, so what, what will we be doing for eternity? We will be plumbing the depths of God's riches for 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 years. That we will be knowing God even as He fully knows us. But we're not there yet. And so now we exist in the partial. But what will be true on that day, what will still be there on that day is love. Love will remain. Even though everything else passes away, love will remain. And so Paul says, that's the better way. Pursue love. Now, like I said, that sounds impossible, doesn't it? How in the world can I possibly love another human being like that? How can I not be offended? How can I not be resentful? How can I be long-suffering? Where do I learn that gift, that way of life? You see, the reason love defines us, or ought to define us, is because love is what defines our Savior, Jesus. I said, Paul sounds like he's describing a person. He is describing a person. Everything Paul says about love in this chapter is embodied in a person whose name is Jesus. He is the one who loves like that. He is patient. He is kind. He is not envious. He is not boastful. He is not conceited. He does not count up wrongdoing. He does not rejoice at unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. That's Jesus. Love for God, love for neighbor, that motivated everything Jesus did and everything Jesus does. Love is what led Jesus to the cross for me and for you. Love brought Jesus back to life. Jesus reigns from heaven because He loves His people. Love is Jesus, or maybe better to say, Jesus 
embodies everything that love means. So, if you're striving for that kind of love and find yourself regularly failing, run to Jesus. I'm not saying you're going to get it right, but He'll give you His Holy Spirit and lead you in the way of love. If you've never known love like that before, if you've never even heard that God is that kind of loving, because, I mean, it almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? We are so jaded and so beat up and so cynical that we, we never believe that, that a person could act like that. But everything about Jesus, from His motives to His actions, is true love all the way through. If you have never known or experienced that kind of love, I invite you to believe in the Lord Jesus. Run to Jesus. It is the love of God in Christ that calls us away from sin to salvation in Him. I invite you to respond to the love of Jesus today. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are creatures who talk much about love and yet don't understand half of the words we use, maybe more than half. We hear this description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and it is so beautiful and yet so convicting. We so want it to be true. We want it to be true of us. We want it to be true for us. Lord, we need Your help. We need Your help to make it come true. We need Your help to love other people in this way. Help us to really fully grasp what You have done for us in Christ. May we be constantly growing the magnitude understanding the magnitude of the love You have for us in Christ so that we can grow in outward love for those around us. Help us to see Jesus and to trust Him for every way that we fall short. And then pick us up and lead us into love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.